because his job methodically is to tell people day after day what's going on. And I spent a lot of time in journalism. And I think what happens if you spend a lot of time in writer's journalism that you get sick of facts and you tend to want to watch things that have another kind of appearance or dimension. And that's what I found right writing book. Though I would have been generous towards all the many factual programs that I watched again. But it's tough. You saw something 10 years ago that it was grinding your face in another totally reprehensible <coughs> form of human behavior, which is what hacks do, what journalists do. And then you say, well, do I want to go back there? Isn't there something else I could watch that's not going to make me feel got at and destroyed by the awfulness of the world? So you tend to think, I'd like to see something beautiful now. Was it tough working within the bureaucracy of BBC to get those kinds of films that you love so much well, in, in, in a way, if I tell you that you know, there are any number of other careers I could have taken, probably the one I would least wanted to do was being a bureaucrat in the BBC. And I think, um, well, again, I think, oh, well, you know 1984 is based on the BBC, all that cancer, the horrible canteens, the library, it's all taken straight from the BBC. And if you work with the BBC, you have a sense of humor about the environment you operate in. Uh, no, I think it's a wonderful place, and I think people fitfully were supportive. And when I had battles with them, they didn't mind. And um, there's no other place still in the world, bar I think probably Arte and bits of Dutch TV, where you really can still commission what you want. Elsewhere, it's kind of been overcome by forces of money or political correctness or whatever. Not HBO. Yes, HBO. Yes, HBO. Okay. <coughs> we'll throw them But probably because of Sheila. Yeah. Sheila Nevins, you, you may or not know about this, she's an extraordinary, pugnacious, brilliant. Um, she has the opposite views I do about documentaries, but we tend to like the same things very much. <laughs> I mean, she constructs her view, and I put it in my book, what a documentary is, from the absolute opposite point of view that I do, but we end up in the center, in the same place. Yeah. So what is, I mean, I, I presume that most of the people in the room are filmmakers. Can you raise your hand, actually, if you're a filmmaker? Oh, my, my, my. Um, what don't we filmmakers understand about the job of a commissioning editor? <laughs> I think, I'm afraid, nothing. <laughs> I think you understand only too clearly who commissioned that, who commissioned that, what they do. I couldn't answer that at all. Is it hard to say no to so many films? And no, no. You get hard. <laughs> you get hard-hearted, and then you feel bad about it. For how long? Uh, you get shorter and shorter. <laughs> but I, you know, you can't. You know, you're not a magician. You know, you have to do what you can. There you go. And often you are very wrong. Often. And how bad do you feel about that for how long? Well, I used to feel envious of the people who were right. And then when Channel 4 stopped doing serious documentaries, I thought, well, it's terrible they stopped doing them. But, you know, you can only do day by day what you're best at, and you have to hope it's okay, really. Is there a film you still remember that got away from you, or you, know, you just wish no, you No, not, not, not oh, apparently, except stories we tell, actually. And, oh, yes, there's a film called The Arbor. Has anyone seen that? Yeah. Even fantastically well. Okay, The Arbor I'll tell you about. It's a 
work of borderline genius. Okay, and this filmmaker who is a performance artist, um, she was given the assignment to make a film about a working class playwright who died of alcoholism and who lived on one of the worst estates in Northern Britain, which is saying quite a lot, and was pretty tired, etc. And she had a couple of hits in the theatre because she was very talented. So um, you could have done a predictable, awful film about this deeply sad life. But what she did was very clever. She filled performances of these plays on the estate, which was easy to figure out. What she then did was interview everyone she wanted, but get actors to lip sync the interviews. So she controlled totally the look of the film. So she ended up with a very sleek, well-organized, beautiful film that had a very raw language in it. And she was able to give it the sort of sheen of fiction, while you're never in any doubt for a moment in the film that what you're seeing isn't true. And it's a masterpiece. I'm not sure if it's a repeatable masterpiece. Like, she's gone on to make fiction films. Um, she's making her second now. In my view, they're not as striking as this documentary, but I don't think you could make a career out of doing the same thing with documentaries. It's just a very wonderful film. But I, I, I felt about that is that <coughs> it, it's not what the BBC wanted from me, so um, let it go somewhere else, and etc. With, with the BBC, did the projects you take on all come to you by way of pitch or, or by way of somebody recommending? I mean, how, what, what is the best way, both when you worked and maybe now as well, with Kate Townsend? Um, of a filmmaker getting on, you know, approaching BBC for funding? Well, I think, bear in mind, the BBC is not postmodern. So you rule out lots of shit ideas and mixing up fact and fiction. Because the BBC would just say no. Then I think it's good to think that the purpose of the BBC is to describe the world in such a way <coughs> that it helps you live. So films that don't do that through art or through music or indeed through observed reality, you, you, sh you should set the bar quite high. Like you should ask yourself, what kind of story is going to appeal to <coughs> meatheads like myself at the BBC? And after that, that rules out about 80% of stuff. Like how they done it before, doesn't really <coughs> tell you anything, etc., etc. I think we developed a style of storyboard, which was kind of, um, it has its analogies in the written press. And I, I'm sorry I keep going back to words, but it's primarily what I deal with. I don't think um, a career around film schools is helpful in selling the BBC. In fact, there's a kind of aversion to this sort of film culture. Um, they're really uh, among myself, too, I have to say, but not, it's not powerful. I'm just mystified by it. When people start talking to me about acts and films or fiction in documentaries, I don't understand what they're talking about. I think the only thing that really marks the film out for me is its capability of diving into reality through narrative. I think you should think, too, about how a story, what a story tells you and how a story tells something. Like, for instance, we've got this fantastic series entitled Why Slavery, 
and we were pitching this morning to various people. And one of the films is about the incitement and selling to marriage of children in India. And to go back a bit, I, one of the most successful films in terms of impact I've been part of the last five years, who saw India's daughter? Well, very few, but you should be ashamed. It's an extraordinary film. Not because it has stylistic properties, because it just goes into the subject, which was a um, mass rape of a girl that died in Delhi, what, six years ago. And what it taught, I get taught again and again and again is if you, you want to interest people in something like that, you have to start with some powerful story. And this filmmaker has, um, he has the stories about children being enslaved. So the film will be brilliant and the film will be watched by millions of people, which is what I want. And the film will exist in different versions. At the end, I will be very happy that some people will figure out something you may think is very obvious that it's bad to enslave children. That will be enough for me. I don't care if it wins any prizes or anything like that at all. I just want people to know that it is bad to enslave children. Okay, so we're all filmmakers who think that our films are incredibly important, brilliant, and timely. Um, what is the best way to get it to someone like you? Uh, do, do you prefer seeing a sample? I mean, if you don't know the filmmaker, if, um, you know, is it, the trailer's too short, do you, do you watch samples? Like yeah, yeah, I'll watch semi, if I can, but I talk to people. And I get up in the morning and I read. I, I think you could start by reading what remains in newspapers. How many of you read the New York Times every day? A few. How many of you read the New Yorker every week? A few. How many of you read the Economist every week? Very few. But this is a cosmopolitan audience. I think I think knowing about the world is a huge plus. I think knowing about film is a big minus. <laughs> You're I'm so bored of bubbles. You're sort of ducking my question, though. We're trying to... Oh, you just send us an email, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you say, I sent an email, I'm enclosing film or not. And I want to make a film about X or Y, and then you decide to write your letter saying, can I have some money, please? No, we don't hear from you. We just keep sending yeah, the email again and again. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. But that's not... That's, um, as Jean-Marie Le Pen said in another context, that's kind of detail. <laughs> He was referring to Hollywood. Right. Well, we don't, we don't need to send emails to you anymore. No, no. BBC. Send them out. Dear BBC, I want to make a film about my childhood. Full stop. Yours, whatever. You know, whatever you like. Any, any way you can. Um, I travel a lot, and I get interested in um, subsequent films. There's a very <coughs> wonderful pitch, but I just should get it, about this um, genius program in South Korea. Where, if your child is intelligent, you sign them up for genius. <laughs> and you had a filmmaker who was signed up that by her over-ambitious mother and dropped out. So she's tracked down all the people who dropped out of the program. And the twist of the story is that this hyper-ambitious mother is busy signing up her sister. And this is a way, a very easy way, into the bizarre obsession in South Korea with education and genius levels, which I think <coughs> you'd all want to watch this film because it's very funny and it's very perceptive. And it has a kind of sweetness as long as it's 
alongside its representation, as the absurdity of life in South Korea. So that, that's, that's the film I like to watch very much. So, honestly, just an email. Yeah, you can call me if you want. I'll just forget what you're saying. They say email's probably better. Okay. Um, very good email. Um, yeah, a charming email. Okay. You don't say, um, if you don't finish my film, I'll break your leg. That would be. <laughs> I've never been offered a bribe, also. Well, it's too late, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever seriously followed up a thing just by an email? And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which help? Yes, I can actually. It was my Liz Merman about hairdressers in Afghanistan. And the email was so good, I thought, I have to know about hairdressers. Yeah, I guess not. Yeah. And the film is very good too. We'll, we'll get to Yado soon, but you, you say that we can pitch by Twitter. So I think Twitter might be a bit... Um, stretching it a bit, yeah. Well, what would be your perfect Twitter pitch, Doug? <laughs> Got a film really good, best I ever made. Film I was born to make. I think the answer would be, fuck off then. <laughs> I don't know that really, I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think there was a, a wonderful comedy called Chinese Man when the producer came to me after some pitching very smart guys here on the jury of Dutch films for some reason. Great that it would appoint some very smart Chinese guy to judge Dutch films. And he, he just said to me, look, I've watched all the films you made about China, they're fine. But they're, they're always about people from the bottom level. They're always about you know, peasants wrenching the land. And he said, how about trying to describe how China actually works? So he sent me this very good proposal about the, a very eccentric, wonderful mayor of the most polluted city in China who's busy um, dynamiting half the city in an effort to turn it into a UNESCO heritage site. And it, it's a fantastically revealing, funny film. Um, it's like a comedy about um, politics in China, about, about inside the province by the life of all institutions. It's not as coherent as it represents itself to be, and it's, it's worthy of comic writing. I mean, China wasn't censored. You have wonderful, wonderful um, sitcoms about, in the British style, about Chinese Communist Party. And this film, is the equivalent of that. It's very funny and it tells you actually what life in China is really about. So um, you had a really good long run at BBC. Why yeah. would you give that up for a startup, essentially? Well, I think, you know, you, you have to change in life, as the Buddha says, and also um, I wanted to do something else before I finish working. And more important than that, it seems to me that um, documentaries are loved everywhere, but they are very, very poorly distributed. Um, they're sort of everyone's best kept secret, right? And actually, although the BBC will remain a great place for documentaries, largely because it's got some new great people at the top of it who understand documentaries, which is not the case three years ago. Um, I feel that in some instances, uh, public broadcasters have sold the past, not the BBC, but I think that one of the weird things I'll never understand is why 
public broadcasters have a fantastic, ill-expressed aversion to documentary. That if you talk to people who really matter in public broadcasters, people do scheduling, people allocate the funds, you might imagine they're trying to destroy documentaries. Not the BBC, but elsewhere. Channel 4, for instance. If they had a program of destroying documentaries, they could not have done it better. <laughs> and I thought, well, with my partner here, Lawrence, I thought this, the, there is an opportunity out here for showing documentaries online. It's going to happen. Somehow, we all know in 10 years' time, many or most documentaries will be viewed online. And we have to try and do this. We're not aiming to be the ultimate authority in the showing of documentaries globally. We have very, very modest sums out of stuff up, but we have been able in the last six months to, to be in a position to put the documentaries we've acquired globally in every country. We're, we're launching in, uh, Lawrence will tell you, throughout Europe, we're launched already, there we go to Canada, and it'll be available throughout the forest. And lastly, in America in February or March. We left America to the end of our travels around the world. Really. So, um, you can do this at a surprisingly low cost. Now, the, you have to market what you do, and that is a very um, interesting proposition. And I would be very grateful if you could come up to me afterwards, instead of pitching me on a show, saying, Nick, we understand how you're going to market this, because I have two dreams regularly. One is, I'm in a dinghy in the middle of the Pacific, the dinghy is painted yellow and the sea is blue. It's it's very sort of David Bowie, you know, ground control to mention Tom. Cloud of is blue and there's nothing I can do. And then the other um, dream I have is hilariously based on a real life episode that I couldn't do a film about. That was the breakup of a cargo ship um, off the west coast of America that had a, a huge consignment of yellow rubber ducks. And they floated all over the world. So, so three years later, ducks were picked up on Japan or wherever. And I kind of think the internet's like that. That's scary. You have to find a way of getting people to know where the ducks are. Where are the ducks? Are they going to, should you firstly paint some blue, or should you let them all be yellow? And where do they fetch up? And how do you tell people, these are our ducks? The ducks are great, those are the ducks. So I think. These things will get sorted out, but I, I think it's a, it's a kind of unanswered mystery of our times. There are many boring mysteries that have been answered, but quite an interesting one, and it really appeals to me. And obviously the idea that we can commission fresh stuff as well as buying existing stuff, which is a great amount of wonderful stuff that we share, um, really interests me. So it's, it's a new start, I'm very happy. Well, speaking of ducks, why don't we play the clip yeah, that introduces what... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we haven't got a duck on the yet. <laughs> yeah, that's basically a dream. In the past, when you wanted to watch documentaries, you'd have to watch them in so-called real-time on TV or struggle to find them on YouTube. At Yale, we find the best documentaries for you. You watch them when you want, and you watch them where you want, anywhere in the world. And we also tell you what these documentaries are about, and why we think they're special, and why you should watch them. <laughs> 
Ну,
that's how I feel. Uh, I think it's, that's the case. So, I, I mean, that's a kind of stunningly optimistic business model. Yeah. That investors will actually see, you know, a return on their investment. Well, they might, they might not see a return, a return on their investment, but, you know, it's great they took the gamble. I mean, I was terrific that they did, you know. I mean, it is very, you know, I wouldn't advise you or you lot. Well, in a weird way, your careers are startups. Why would you trust anyone like me to make sure your career survives? You're in just a <coughs> level of insecurity that I'm in there. Except I have a you mean you don't get a salary? No, I get a salary. I get a salary if the thing holds up. Then it's not a good comparison. No, no, it's not nice. <laughs> well, let's say it's like a, it's like a funded um, documentary at the end of which, when the funding runs out, you'll have to look for the next piece of funding. It's like that, you know. Or it will be making money by that stage. Um, it seemed like there was a mix of um, older documentaries or documentaries yeah. have been around yeah. and um, new ones. Yeah. What's, is there a percentage breakdown? Not really. I think uh, the difficulty with the American market is that there's no, apart from Netflix, it's a bit sort of iffy about documentaries, unless they bring in huge American audiences. Um, there's no place really you can go to watch coherently existing documentaries. So we, there are two things we do. Firstly, as the clip indicates, moment we rely on me. I hate this word, curate, which is basically a sort of pompous word to say, I'll tell you what's quite good. And then we have, every month we have a, three documentaries, four documentaries on the same subject that we call a deep dive, and that's accompanied by stuff we found on the internet, which often is very good. Plus, we have a deal with a remarkable website called Browser that you won't know about. But the guy who runs the browser is a genius, and he is fully cognizant with a whole range of long-form articles from places like the New Yorker, anywhere in the world. So we put that up with the deep dive, and that's a monthly event. And then also what we've done is commission around 40 of these shorts. One or two full-length films, but 40 shorts. We've only been going, you know, three weeks, four weeks. And um, the shorts, notably, you saw the bit from Brazil, I think it's very good. I don't know about the 60-something head of the Trans Association of Sex Workers, yes, in Rio. And I think that's a very wonderful short. And that was a filmmaker I just met in Rio, actually, in a Japanese restaurant on the beach. And How does that work, by the way? No, to commission a short. Well, they have very good um, sashimi. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. And uh, she I mean, was but these are, I'm sorry, sorry get off. Yeah. But, but, I mean, a short, do you come in? Well, we the short commissioned a batch of five. No, we, we, we're happy to pick up existing shorts. We haven't got around to figuring out how to do that, but we will do that. Um, otherwise, we commission them in batches of five, and this is the deal. that. The guy talking to the camera that you saw is part of a series that, it's a format. We need for more formats like that. But the format's called Criminals. And people talk for five minutes about a crime they committed, and why and how they committed it. Need more formats like that. These are very addictive five-minute shows. The other ones we've commissioned are five films on the same subject. 
And the Cape Town one by Carlo Matabani, who did the letter to Mandela, are very good. And the best one he did is about he has a dream recurrent, not about being in a dinghy on the Pacific, but about being buried by Earth at his own funeral. So he went to a psychotherapist who's an African, and then he went after that to a Sangoma, a witch doctor, and he's compared in five minutes the two analysis of the dream. It's very funny, very, very funny. The real ones, as I said, there was that one, and there's another one about a, a bird's songbird contest in Rio, and someone who can't get his bird to sing properly. <laughs> Wonderful. And um, the British ones, you saw the taxidermy one, in addition to that, which, by the way, I showed in China, and they were appalled in China, and I said to them, well, why are you so upset by stuffed animals? You spend your whole time eating dogs. And we did this series, which is on the site, um, called The Biggest Chinese Restaurant in the World, where we had to cut out someone opening an oven because a dog, roasted dog, came out of the oven and the BBC thought this was not acceptable for British audiences. But taxidermy is okay in Britain, but not eating roasted dog. Anyway, so we're looking for more quirky, interesting films from remote parts of the world. Another bridge one we got in, and I mention this because for good reasons, is a very good five-minute film about a, a grime MC and performer. Now, grime is, in Britain, is Muslim hip-hop. And she's 25. Um, she comes from an immigrant Libyan family. She has green or pink hair, depending on the week. And um, we're trying to get together a film following her for a year and we will develop this with the BBC. So the point I'm saying about these shorts is that we, we will be using them as pilots for longer films. Like we pay, we want first refusal on the shorts, and we will help the filmmakers get commissions, hopefully by working with Arte or the BBC or whoever. And the purpose of this is to try to open up um, documentary filmmaking. We can't afford Fred Wiseman. Fred Wiseman's films are four hours long, and we can't afford Fred, and Fred wouldn't want to come to us anyway. But what we can do is try to find brilliant, quirky films from young filmmakers. So, I mean, it's a little confusing. The commission implies that you are going out seeking the filmmakers. Um, well, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sort of am. Yeah, well, I found that one at the Japanese restaurant. Yeah. Right, but we, say, have a short idea that we think we need to send you a charming Yeah, email. yeah, send me a a little letter, a little email saying, I hear five great subjects okay. um, for a short. They're quite difficult to do shorts. I mean, she clocked them immediately, but, and so did this guy Philip who did taxidermy, but it's quite difficult. Okay. It's quite you, interesting. Are you willing to talk like ballpark numbers of what you... Well, not figures, because I had this iron rule about sort of logic, because we never had any money at sort of all we didn't talk money until we saw the project because we like to juggle the budgets around. But you know, we give enough money to get these films made, and we show the films, and um, that's a good idea. Um, what are what are the rights involved? I mean, are they exclusive? To no, you know? we Yano takes nothing exclusively. If you came to us and say you want to sell a short somewhere else, that'd be fine. But otherwise, what we tend to do try to bunch them together in 25 times 5 minutes, 25 minutes, mm -hmm. and try to sell them on places like BBC World News, um, you know, 
do what we can with them and split the and and then split. Can you hear me? Yeah. Then split the revenue. So, but the purpose of this is to, we we don't at Yano take anything exclusively um, for the moment, and um, the idea is to get good content for us, but to share the proceeds with filmmakers in the best way we can. Well, on the longer films, the feature films, um, if you're putting in a decent amount of money, is there a window where you want to show it um, after broadcast, after theatrical? No, I think we'd be receptive to the fate of each film. I mean, our purpose is to acquire the best content, and um, you know, if the film is a huge success and goes to loads of festivals, we'd be attentive to that. The whole point is to, at this stage, get ourselves associated with the best content and show it in the best way we can. So we'd be flexible. And are you willing to look at older films that... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We have a policy of buying people's back catalogues. You could see there's a Brimfield film in that. Um, some of Kim Longinotto's films some of the um, Penny Baker's films, um, Alex Gibney's films, and, you know, whatever catches our eye, you know, magpie-like, um, whatever was going to work for us, we, we, we want to have classics on, yeah, we just started, we want to have a batch of classics as well. So, um, let's talk about the future of documentary for, for a minute, uh, or two, um, and we're going to open up to questions in a few minutes. Um, you know, is, is there a future for the theatrical documentary, do you think? Or is it on the, you know... Can I just say, pass. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, outside of festivals. There will always be festivals, but, you know, I mean, for filmmakers... Well, we don't know there will always be festivals that Donald Trump may shut them down. We don't know. <laughs> Trying to shut down Hamilton. Indeed. No, I look, to be serious, I, I really don't know. I think that um, DVDs are going out, so a lot of stuff will be online, but my hunch is that people will want to go to cinemas to see certain films. Um, I wouldn't fetishize the cinema documentary. I think that's a mistake. I, I think the kind of feeling filmmakers have their films are not worth anything unless they go into cinemas is really not a good idea. But don't you still sort of, you know, even with Yahoo, don't you sort of rely on the exposure that a film gets through theatrical? No, I, I've no. Never, never had any interest at all in theatrical documentaries. I mean, the only thing that matters to me is the films are great and people can watch them. And I, the audience for documentaries occasionally, I mean, the Louis Theroux documentary about... Scientology, despite the fact it being another one, it did very well, got a million pounds in British box office. That's remarkable. But I, I tend to feel there are other ways of measuring the success of a film. And I don't think theatrical um, exhibition confers a style on a film. I think films are films, however you watch them. Do you, do you think, though, that the platforms are getting smaller and smaller? People are watching on laptops, on their phones. Does that dictate stylistically the way documentaries get made? More close-ups, more, you know, I mean... I don't, I don't know. I think people tend to talk, most of all, in an unconvincing way 
about the need for short-form material. Well, we've made concessions towards that, but I think short should be shown because they're great. I, I, I really don't know. It doesn't make any difference for me. And it may be because I don't have that sort of aesthetic of documentaries anyway. I find a lot of wide shots rather boring. And um, as Isaiah Berlin said, he said, um, people are my landscape. Uh, I feel that. So I feel that films tend to be interesting in proportion to the level of human interest they display. So there are exceptions. Yeah. Has anyone seen Bear Moth? Um, nobody. Amazing Chinese film with commentary updated on Dante and nothing but wide shots of the ruined landscape of Inner Mongolia. That sounds like a wonderful pitch, doesn't it? <laughs> I can see you turning it down everywhere. But it's an absolutely extraordinary film. Well, you also said your you know, most influential film on you was The Sorrow and the Pity, yes. you know, and that's what, four and a half hours long. So. Yeah, but it's full of brilliant interviews. It's built up out of... It's, it's asking you, do you want to know? Do you really want to know? Right. Will you pick up a four and a half hour film if it moves you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, has anyone seen the O.J. Simpson film that he has in the intro? Eight hours. Wonderful. Not, I think, hardly five boring minutes in it. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary film. It has no pretensions of being theatrical, but the Oscars have accepted it in contention. It's brilliant. Are you optimistic about the future of documentaries? I mean, do you think they're getting better than ever? Um, and do you think there will be you know, the way, the distribution, as you say, to... to well, I think, I think the best thing in our time is two things. First, you could be a pessimist. Um, it seems that, on the whole, the state of the world instructs you in a certain level of pessimism. And I think that... I found this great quote by Albert Camus, who said, you shouldn't believe in the future. The more you believe in the future, the less attention you pay to the present. And I sort of feel that everyone who makes documents should be passionately interested in the present, if possible, to the exclusion of speculation about the future, which is futile. And when it is done in documentaries, it results in bad films that are tendentious and usually ideological driven and all the other boring criticism I have to make about them. But definitely the hits of reality come from the present. Do you feel like you know, even the gloom and doom, uh, you know, Brexit and Trump and all that shit, um, that, that commissioning editors and funders will be looking for documentaries that address this kind of crisis we're living in? Or is there room still for the artistic documentary, the personal documentary? No, I think, I think it's more likely you have a sort of wave of interest in feel-good films. Cheer-up films, especially on television where the audience is getting older and older. Um, I don't look forward to sitting in an old people's home and watching cheer-up films. Because I hate them. I hate them. Passionately, uh, but I don't think that means you have to be glum. I think that the best thing is just to look at things in front of you and make sense. And actually, in all the films I watched trying to write this book, um, I don't think Shower is glum. I think Shower, well, I, I think it's extraordinary. I'm not a whole week watching Shower. I think how many people here have watched Shower? And how, not many, by the way. And how many people have watched it more than once? One person. And how many people have read Proust? And how many people have read Proust more than once? 
Actually, what, two people? That's three people. More than Shara. <laughs> well, I think, personally, Shara is a life-changing film. And I think you, you can't look at the world in the same way afterwards. And actually, it's not depressing, because the reason it's not depressing is because it's so extraordinary what he looked at and how he looked at it. And if you look at something hard enough with a sceptical but also a kind of reverential eye for what people are really like, you aren't depressing. The only way to be depressing is to have no commitment to things at all. Because if you have no commitment, no investment, you get nothing back. I know you've always had a thing about the necessity for humor in documentaries, too. I think we probably need it more than ever, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's very difficult. I think making films that are perceptive and entertaining as well as serious is really demands a lot of talent. I mean, that's what, why people make Glum films. Because glum's the easier. <laughs> All right, I promised there'd be a lot of time for questions, and uh, let's, let's uh, adhere to that. Uh, who has a question out there? Yes? What's your email? <laughs> <laughs> it's nick at yellow.com. <laughs> ah. Short film. Well, we've been running them at five minutes, but we will basically take any length from them as okay. we get started. We don't mind. And what about the versioning for foreign films? How does it work and who At pays? the moment, Yano is working on subtitles into English, but we have a problem you may be able to help us with. That is, I would imagine, um, assuming we can be successful in English, that we would have different versions of Yano. Um, in different cultures, in different places. Uh, France would be a place, China would be a place, Japan, Korea, hopefully India. And I had, I've had offers from all these places, including um, Germany, but what the offers don't yet contain is any notion, or why should they, of how such ventures could be mutually profitable. I mean, I, you know, you've got to factor in um, how to do that. Obviously, Starbucks <laughs> a very successful um, business of licensing stuff globally, but documentaries are far more difficult. Uh, we have to figure out how we could work with people so that we both make money. Are you looking in particular for films from countries that aren't typically represented in the, you know, on broadcast or? Um, I, I think that's a very interesting question. I was trying to write about this at six o'clock this morning because when I started. Um, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Story Hall, I picked out rather arbitrarily countries that I'd try and follow. I, I thought I couldn't deal with India because I can't eat Indian food. And also, because I could never, it's more serious, I could never understand India. That, that Britain is full of upper-class Indians who would instruct me in the nature of India. I would forget what they said about castes and religion immediately. It, to me, India is completely baffling. So it took a while. I mean, I could have gone made more films about India, but it always seemed to me that, that having really great films about China was really important. So we did that. Um, so we want more Chinese films, definitely. Um, the other thing I was writing about this morning, I decided to get a lot of films about Israelis and Palestinians, and that was more difficult because the Palestinian films were, on the whole, nostalgic agitators. And the Israeli films were 
increasingly um, critical, which is a very good thing of the Israeli government, but it, it, it was always very tough getting these onto the BBC. Not because the BBC <coughs> senses it, it's not like 1984 at all. It's just that you have to be aware how much hostility there is banked up that will be released every time you criticize Israel. And the filmmakers in Israel, to their great credit, have increasingly criticized Israel. And they have their reasons for doing that, but it, the films don't fit into easily the output of something like the BBC. So I was writing about it this morning. And I would have wanted more really spiffy European films. For some reason, um, not, not Dutch, not Danes, not Swedes, but there's, there, there are huge numbers of documentaries in Germany, um, or France indeed, but not all of them translate into international viewing. And I think it's maybe my fault. Maybe I didn't spend enough time um, on these sort of films. By the way, another question occurred to me. Are you, is Yadda going to be like first money in ever? Yeah, we went, no, we have The first time we commissioned, believe it or not, um, is about pigs. Um, and I, I've been fascinated for a long time by the role of the pig, both as a cultural artifact like Animal Farm, but also the pigs sort of have a um, almost utopian role or dystopian role in the future of humanity. I mean, the, um, there are a billion pigs in China <coughs> and the um, antibiotics that they feed pigs to make them grow reliably so they can be slaughtered is busy fouling up what remains of cultivable Chinese land. At the same time, there's enormous pig cloning institute in China, plus the use of um, pig hunts. As we speak, um, you know, a heart transplant between a pig and a baboon is taking place so that they can figure out if you can put pig hearts and not just vowels from pig hearts into humans. So I think this is a very interesting story. I think it's the kind of, um, it's good director, kind of story would work well for Yaddo. I think, I think Yaddo, you know, online you have to have stories. Um, if you commission, they have to last a certain amount of time. And, um, they sort of have to be films that if you had a long plane journey, you might download them and watch on the plane. That might rule out a shower. <laughs> so that sounds I, like a, yeah. I can't imagine what I would feel like if I watched shower on a 10 hour plane ride. I think I'd be a fucking wreck the other end and it would take me about three days to recuperate. So that sounds like a yes on the first one. And would yeah. you actually help get yeah, I'm like putting in a call to Shilland Evans. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I do all okay. that, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Great. I may not have my calls returned, but I'll do it. I think you'll get the returns. Yes. Uh, hi, Nick. I had a question about um, giving up the genre of speculation. Because yeah. then fiction takes over. Just films about the post-apocalypse. <coughs> and also people like Carl Rowe, who says, you know, we're creating realities. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I want a film about post-truth. I do not know how to make a film about post-truth. I talked to, don't laugh now, my pal, Al Nientov, who's head of all the arts of the BBC and is a great BBC Mandarin. And I felt he would do a better film about post-truth than uh, the average reporter at the BBC, because reporters find it very hard to deal with, you know, what, what Colbert called truthiness, immortally. But I think somehow, you, if you did a film about post-truth, you'd have to root it in some event. I think when 
it's very difficult. Documentaries are not speculative interests. It seems to me when you film something, it's what's in front of you. And you can do uh, pseudo-scientific, futurological films. They all come down to various things I hate, like CGI and all the rest. I mean, I think it's very difficult. I also think that films are linear. And linear films are very good for describing what happened. Why not say what happened? But actually, if it's a question of describing alternative realities, um, you might say that basically fiction or um, written stuff is easier. But that's just my prejudice. If you could prove me wrong any time. Anybody else? Questions? Yes. Did everybody hear the question? Yeah. Why, why do we create a new platform rather than working with iTunes? Well, I think because people um, said they believed in what we were doing when we said we wanted to have the only dedicated platform globally for documentaries. And, you know, you want to you wanna control what you do. You want it to have an editorial point of view. You want to be able to say, if you watch this film, you'll have a good time. You don't want it to be just so huge refuse dump for documentaries. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to, there's a very good film here called um, Plastic China. Well, <laughs> the media are becoming rapidly like Plastic China. It's just heaps of, um, you know, used plastic bags that no one wants. And the whole point of, if you can make it work, of a, uh, something like Yellow is that you're, you're rescuing films from oblivion. You're saying, you're going to want to watch this. Does that make sense? Yes. Do you want to limit the numbers of films that you Well, on? I think it's a very interesting question because um, there's another platform that I'm not terrifically familiar with called Curiosity, which has loads and loads of science films. But the, the fact is that you don't necessarily <laughs> admire online activity because it's infinite. The problem about the online is, although it is near infinite, does anyone visit the site called QZ, Quartz? I'll quote you out. Quartz is really good. All right, the Atlantic magazine, which is a very stuffy patriarchal institution in America, instead of expanding their site, they create this new site called Quartz, and my daughter put me onto it. And it's ostensibly a business site, but its real um, subject is the business of the world, and they have very sharply written articles by people in their 20s or 30s. I think my daughter would like to get a job there. Um, and it's very rare that anything is boring on Quartz. And the articles are the right length, and there are not too many of them. I mean, it has an archive, but it's not like the archive in the New York Times. You, you visit the archive Quartz because it seems like a good idea. You don't, it's simpler than the New Yorker, but the, the pieces are very good and very sharp, and I sort of feel that's a good recipe for the internet, which you don't want to overwhelm people with too much choice of material. Uh, are you familiar with the Sundance Dot Club? A bit, a bit. Do you feel that has too many <coughs> examples? No, I, many? I wouldn't say that. I just sort of feel, um, you know, my roots are closer to what you want to watch every day. 
So I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I visited it like I visited all these sites, you know. And then I thought, well, yeah, that's the best we can do um, with the possibilities. Um, I actually was about to ask how does Yahoo relates to Sundance now, which is actually a very good app to. Yeah. No, we and don't. We don't have anything to do with Sundance. We might love to, but at the moment we don't. Okay, uh, that's for the longer versions, but for the short documentaries, how do you position Yadu in the online universe between uh, the Vice family of sites and even AJ Plus, which are like really um, aggressive on the short documentary and being there in that format? Thank you. I, I sort of, I admire the marketing of Vice and I'm quite liking it. But I think that's a question of my age and experience. I often find their stories have been better covered by the BBC, but the BBC is less good at ruthlessly selling itself because it doesn't have to. I, the answer to your other question is I just don't know. I have a feeling what makes a good short, and I have to pursue my instincts and my feeling. And, um, you know, I can't really compare um, collections of shorts. I, I just think it's important that we have very good shorts and that they appeal to people very much. I think they will. I hope they will. Um, do you plan, by the way, to support the films you choose online in text with, with you know, small articles, yeah, absolutely. emails? Absolutely. Well, we haven't got this together yet, but it, the, I had, in the course of setting up Yellow, I had, um, I think I'm telling you too much. I'm too honest about all this. I went around talking to people and, <coughs> with Lawrence, and... Um, you got a feeling once in a while that you met someone who really knew what he or she was talking about. And there was one place in LA where um, the, he's a consultant, but he made an absolute bundle. His great startup was, of all things, South Korean soaps. And he bought a tonnage of them. Um, because he passed through the, the Korean neighborhood of LA on the way to work every day practically place where his office is. And he thought, well, these people probably would want to watch South Korean soaps, and they have no means of doing that. So that's what he did. And um, basically, what he told me about, which we haven't worked out properly yet, but we will, is that nowadays the, the action of choosing something is inseparable from the obligation to promote it. So there's no editorial distinction between marketing Editorial. I mean, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. I know the idea of Chinese walls between, you said it on the internet, this doesn't exist, and you should assume it doesn't exist. And what you have to do is find ways of uh, remarketing, like regranting, I love that word, in foundations. It's not cynical. You have to draw people's attention repeatedly to what you have in different ways. Because they'll come to your site every time wanting something fresh. And the only way you can supply them with something fresh is to almost sort of rotate interests and approach subjects, approach films in different ways the whole time. And I think that's profoundly true. And, you know, people who get a knack at that tend to be successful on the internet. Yeah. That's a question that belongs to the ducks in the Pacific. I have no idea. 
I mean, Tintin used to be called the magazine of young people from 7 to 77. <laughs> a very cheesy French advertising slogan, but nonetheless probably quite true. And I think you look around you at IDFA, who's watching documentaries. Well, it's a large niche audience in each country, but it's not distinguished, um, it's not distinguished in terms of age. And I think this is one of the problems that Storyville faced on the BBC, because it was put in a channel, BBC4 Digital, which was largely watched by over 60s. And um, I got to feel this is all wrong. I, I got to feel that it, it didn't matter so much because people found Storyville online. But I, I felt this isn't quite the right <coughs> marketing of documentaries. But then, for all the wonders of the BBC, I, I think its marketing strategy is locked in 1964. Um, basically, it has a labyrinthine system uh, priorities and it has a strong tendency to promote what already does well. Like if you have Wimbledon or you have EastEnders, you promote the hell out of Wimbledon or EastEnders but you, you find it harder to promote things at the edge of the schedules because they seem less important. Nick, do you, do you worry about the future of documentary in terms of the younger generation now growing up without this, steeped in this tradition of documentary who don't know about documentaries who don't have the attention span to watch Well, no, because, look, I, apart from the story and the pity, I knew fuck all about documentaries. And also, I had an inbuilt aversion to documentaries from the 70s because I didn't know the best ones. And the, the, the ones I watched on television seemed to be very boringly didactic. So... I think the answer, the great thing about documentaries is you don't have to know anything about them. There isn't a course you have to attend to figure out you know, the history of documentaries. You read my book, it's, it tries to demolish that idea that there is a canon. Canon, word, right word, yeah. And I just think, you know, they're full of people. The world is full of people who want to describe the world. And they will find ways of doing that. And some of their films will be even longer than show the longest documentary I found is 14 hours long. It's about the Cultural Revolution. It's by Joris Evans, and it doesn't contain a single moment of truth. That is some achievement, even for a Dutch filmmaker. But, you know, people make documentaries of whatever length they want. If some of them are very short, some of them are long, that's fine. From you... a practical point of view, um, there are a number of sites that are SVOD, that focus only on docs. Yeah. And just for people in the audience who are licensing an older film that already exists rather than your new commissions, <coughs> it is great that you are doing them non-exclusive yeah. and that they can license to Curiosity Stream and Excite and you know Curio and all the others. Each has their own curatorial flavor. But your, uh, I was gonna ask if your model is to the consumer is like a five euro or pound a month type of a mini SVOD, or is it a advod, like ad supported? I, I mean, it's yeah. not ad supported. We so are capable of taking <coughs> sponsorship, and we want to take sponsorship. We will take sponsorship, but it's it's as cheap as we can make it. It's three pounds a month, yeah. and the idea is it should be approaching sort of Starbucks level. Yeah. I mean, seriously, if any of you know powerful sponsors who wish to create the sort of films I've been talking about. And we've been totally, totally open to that. And, you know, I think if I didn't say that clear enough, I mean, we really do want young audiences, you know. I mean, but I think, 
you know, I don't see, I, I think the idea that people under 30 only watch something three minutes long, I, I don't believe in that. I, I think, actually, to judge by the voting in the last Brexit and Trump, it seems to be people my age have no attention span at all. So, um, and no knowledge of anything, by the way. Um, though I don't want to linger on that. <laughs> I find it profoundly distressing how many of my friends want to know nothing. Yes, uh, sorry. Hello. Um, uh, I'm wondering, uh, my experience uh, the last year is people ask me, uh, can I see your documentary on the internet or your uh, online? And I can send him my documentary one-to-one uh, -one on demand. But how, how does it work in your system, in your platform? Is there a sort of marketing and building an audience and linking to names or search machines? How does it work? And the second question I want to put is, what is the, the financial model about of your business? Oh, I wish my partner Lawrence was here. Well, we take things for four years plus. Um, we pay for them. And obviously, if you go onto our site, you can lock up topics or titles and um, you know obviously we apart from stuff that's freely available on the internet like you know I mean sort of really wacko stuff that you just pick out and you think oh well this goes well with another film we'll put it up we you know we have contracts and we pay people I, I'm sorry that's a rather lame answer but um, that's Oh, building audience. Well, maybe you can tell me. I think, basically, that if you gave me a million euros tomorrow, I could piss away a million euros without increasing the subscriber base in about two weeks. I think huge amounts of money are wasted on marketing online, and I'm very skeptical about the performance of a lot of this. At the same time, I think the way to do it is build internally a sort of credibility and a self-marketing capability. And I was trying to explain that probably not very well in saying there wasn't really any division between editorial and marketing these days. In other words, that's what you have to think about every day. You have to get up and say, well, this is what we have and this is how we're going to market it. It could be that, you know, quite soon we would have more consultants in to advise us about that. But that's my hunch about the way we'll be going. And obviously the other thing is that you develop partnerships, either being owned by the same people or just working with other people. And we're on the lookout for that. We had conversations with uh, lots of people, including the BBC, New York Times, etc., etc. Yes. Uh, do you want to wait for the microphone? Can, can we pass? I have, a, have, I have a question that I hope you find appropriate. What do you think about Adam Curtis' films? Oh, I really like Adam Curtis' uh, films, even when I disagree with them. Okay, and uh, would you program something like this? And can you tell well, more about absolutely. him the as a documentary the filmmaker? About, the problem about Adam, Adam Curtis' films, the rights are not always cleared outside Britain. Because both the BBC and Adam Curtis haven't cared enormously about where his films are shown. But I really like his films even when, as is often the case, I just don't agree with them at all. Is that an answer? Pretty short one. <laughs> well, what, what else did you want to ask me? 
Do you mean which of them I liked and which I didn't like? No, just the form. I mean, it's the, like, you say about objective documentary. No, I didn't say anything about objective documentary. Okay. About the truth? Yes. Well, he, he is in his own way a truth seeker, though he always insists that you can't know anything. And he always insists that other people think they know things and don't know them. And he just knows that he doesn't know anything. But that is contradicted by the dogmatism of a lot of his opinions about recent history. So there's an interesting contradiction at the heart of each of his films. And I think my favorite was Bitter Lake. I thought that was a very good film indeed. The last one I had a few more problems with, but I'd always watched them with great pleasure. And I think he's a very interesting, perverse conversationalist. Do you, do you like um, documentaries that play with the form, like hybrid documentaries? Or, um, well, I, did, I, I did like stories we tell enormously. I think it's a little, well, not a little, it's a masterpiece. I, I'm not sure you have to ask me about individual titles. I mean, I think in theory that's great, but quite often I sort of don't feel they quite work. But I mean, you know, it's just a view. Just a view. Uh, uh, there's a question. Way back there? Is that whose phone is it? That's probably mine. Oh, I I think this is a disaster. I think that they have to be universal. 
and have to find ways of presenting stuff in a different way and getting it to universal audiences. I think that um, feature docs, as you call them, um, well, HBO were great with feature docs. The BBC was okay. The Scandinavian <coughs> broadcasters are terrific. And Arte have been terrific. But it's a very small band of brothers or sisters. And on the whole, um, broadcasters were never very interested in feature docs because they're hard to schedule and also because they never got them. They never understood what they were. So if you ask me, What's the impact of um, private investors? Well, it's such a huge subject. It's very difficult to be coherent about that. I'm aware that many um, foundations, they, you know, I'm not necessarily going to agree with what the, why they want films made. And in some respects, I think it implies a sort of return to the 1930s when every documentary was made for the Shell corporate, you know, Shell or whatever. I, I think you have to be careful about all this. I, I think it's hard now to get up in the morning and say, I want to make a feature doc because I want to make one. I mean, there are all these funds around, but quite often the funds want things you don't want to do. Well, but that, that begs the question. You know, so much of it is they want social impact yeah. films. They want yeah. measurable results and stuff. What advice do you give to filmmakers or just making an artistic documentary, or making a personal Well, I, I, I think just be clever and persistent. I mean, I'm very skeptical, as is evident, about the social impact of documentaries anyway. I mean, if, the, if we knew more about social impact of documentaries, we might know more about why they didn't succeed. Um, I, I think you really think they don't succeed? I mean, you're that cynical about them? No, it's not a question of being cynical. I'm not in the least cynical. First, I'm just trying to tell you what I think is what. I mean, you, I mean, you wouldn't say that journalism had a huge social impact, always. So why would people imagine that documentaries do? It's a kind of founding myth of documentaries from the 1930s. But in fact, they've, it's a sort of echo chamber argument. They, documentaries are considered to be left-wing. And left-wing people like to think it's easy to change the world. Therefore left-wing people think that documentaries change the world. Um, I'm saying in an Adam Curtis way that I'm deeply skeptical about that, that some documentaries have a huge social impact, but largely because they're combined with other media. What about something like The Inconvenient Truth? That did well, that I make people aware that. of the... No, I don't think it probably was viewed largely by people who agreed with Gore in the first place. So I, I have to say I think it was a good film on what they're doing, because there were probably some people myself included, took global warming more seriously after watching it. I, I don't know. I think it's worth, I mean, there's this film in China that was viewed by over, what, is over 100 million people about pollution in China. I hope it had an impact. I don't think we know. I think the dogma or the assumption that that's what documentaries are for um, to produce social impact is actually quite unrealistic. I mean, I can't, can't recall a single documentary I've been involved in that had any measurable impact. Yes, but Eugene had a fantastic problem getting it out to people. And he'd be the first person to say that it, that it had an effect, but how big an effect? You know, I don't know. I'm not saying that's a reason for not, for not to do films like that. I'm just saying it's all quite difficult, really. 
I mean, if liberals were right, the election would have gone the other way because of all those documentaries telling you how awful the right wing in America is. Sorry? The reality is that making documentaries is not getting any cheaper. Yeah. So these are where the sources of funding are. Yeah, no, no, I'm not, I wouldn't argue with that at all. You have to get funded. And I very ill-advisedly once said if Goebbels came back with a fund, there'd be a queue of documentaries around, makers around the block, and that was a stupid thing to say. And I wouldn't blame anyone for a moment going to social impact funds and foundations. I'm just at liberty to wonder, is this a good idea? Maybe the answer is yes, I wouldn't. Um, I think we have time for a final question or two. Um, anybody out there? Yes. Yeah. I shout from that. I just wondered if um, it was the same Nick Fraser who will be judging the film for Yadda's, the Nick Fraser who is watching the storyboard, or whether you'll be looking No, at no, I, I, I'm, I'm not editor of Storyboard anymore. I, I will work with the BBC, but in a, out of the BBC capability. And Kate Townsend, who worked with me, is a brilliant editor. Dressed or projects to have. What are you talking Sorry. about aesthetically yeah, different? What I meant was how will, you, how will you be judging differently than you were? Oh, I see. Well, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> I mean, you tell me, you lot have to tell me what to take, because I rely on you to make great films. All I do is try to figure out what's a very good film. I, I think it's too complicated a question to answer. I think, on the whole, um, no, they're just personal things. I, I don't want to do too many more films about massacres. <laughs> Can, uh, there's, you, you need a mic. So hang on a sec. <coughs> you mentioned that your shorts were going to be grouped under subjects. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Well, for instance, the films we're having made in Japan, um, there's a really, really good Japanese filmmaker, a friend of mine, and her third film is on um, Storyville. Alas, it didn't come to it because they want to put it in the music category. And it's about, it's called um, Tokyo Idols, and it's about teenage performers and the lonely middle-aged men who follow them around, haplessly paying huge amounts of money to shake hands with them. And it's a very good film. And she wants to make a series of shorts about the way women are treated in Japan. And I don't think I've seen a film about that. And she has five really good ideas. So I'm using this, her as an example, really, because the more films I can get, even more than the ones I showed you that sort of make me start to think and work well virally, um, the happier I'd be. So if you wanted to break with the tradition of I mean, it's only a sort of mild format. You come from a place and you use the place to say what you think about the world. That's fine by me. I'd just be looking for five small good ideas that would entertain and illuminate. Anyone else? Come on, your last shot at Nick, come on. <laughs> All right. Um, she asked me, am I exhausted by this act of non-self-revelation? <laughs> yes. Did I manage to say as little as my, about myself as possible? Yes. When is your book coming out? Oh, well, I have to have it finished. Um, I suppose it's finished midway through next year, but I'm trying to finish it by sundowns. And it's, it's the sort of book you have to write fast, otherwise 
you have to pedal hard, otherwise you fall down. Okay, one last question. Yeah. What would be the most surprising thing <laughs> you do not know about you? How much I hate the British upper classes. I mean, but we know, we know that. Yeah, all right. Come on. Come on. <laughs> how much, how many other things I feel I could have done in life? Like, well, I wouldn't mind being, I, I know it sounds like, you know this comedian Peter Cook, when he, great British humorist, he said, um, it's all about a sort of bum who says he, he would have liked to be a lawyer, but he didn't have the Latin. And <laughs> I don't know really, I just think that loads of other turnings one can take in life, but I'm just terrifically happy I ended up trying to find a good documentary. But I, I, I don't know, I don't think, look, if you're a French Protestant, you don't have a surprising life because it's, you know, you're hyper-rationalistic. You're always looking, you're always at, in admiration of people who are the opposite of yourself. I find that in Werner Herzog, by the way. Do you notice the way Werner Herzog always works with doppelgangers? Because Werner, he has a marvelous voice, but he's basically a Bavarian businessman. And he always finds loonies to work with to disguise his hypernormality. And when I watched Werner's films, I thought, well, shit, alas, that's what I'm like. <laughs> On that note.